my hair looks like hell. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> hey, good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Backyard Professor Sunday Night Firesides, live 6 p.m. Tonight, I have the continuation, part two of a 3,576-part interview with the great Cheryl Bruno. Yes, I'm joking, I think, a little bit. But anyway, yeah, I've got Cheryl Bruno here, and we are going to, I'm starting just a couple of minutes early just to let you guys get here, and uh, oh, you've already given me a like, you're way too kind, way too kind. Uh, we will share Cheryl's ideas and journey in this book. We want to talk about the Masonic aspects of the Book of Abraham, without question. We're going to talk a little bit about the First Vision, perhaps the Book of Mormon. Uh, I have been in communication last night with Dan Vogel, and I know exactly what his argument is concerning the Book of Mormon being an anti-Masonic book, and why he does not find Method Infinite totally accurate. It will be very fun to have that discussion. This afternoon, I talked with George Miller, and most of you, many of you, hi, Alisa, hi, Gail, um, most of you heard that uh, interview as well, and he's got some interesting things that he wants to talk with Dan Vogel about, so in the future, keep in mind, I, I asked Dan to come on the show tonight, and he couldn't because he does not have his copy of Method Infinite yet, so he, he should have ordered it from Greg Coford books instead of from Amazon, and it's all good. It'll work yes, out. And, yeah. You know, Carrie, Carrie, let me just say, if, if you haven't ordered your book yet, go ahead and go straight to uh, Greg Coford books website and get the book from them because they will send it right to you. I don't know what the problem is with Amazon, but they're having a, a slight holdup with sending the books out. So uh, yeah. even if you've ordered it through Amazon, you can go and cancel that and then go to, to Greg Coford and they will get you your book right out. So, yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I just had a uh, another friend, T.O., he'd not hear just yet unless he, hey, Tim Rathbone, welcome. T.O. called me from Hawaii and he told me, he said, uh, I can't get my copy from Amazon, so I'm going to help him get it through Greg yeah. Coford books. I ordered mine through Greg Coford and I'm not kidding, just like. Three people I know, Bruno, Swick, and Latursky, they promised to deliver, and they did. So go through Greg Colford books. Those guys are just, they are on the ball. We don't want you to be without this book at all. And my goal is to, right to you. they will too. Yeah, Cheryl's not kidding. They will get it right to you. I got mine right on the day they said it would be delivered. And uh, my goal is to get the first edition completely sold out so that they're forced to reprint a second edition or a, or a second <laughs> printing, a second printing. So that's what we're looking for. Hey, Dan Vogel. Good to see you. Dan Vogel is in the house. Awesome. Doug right. Vincent, Gail Capson, Mosia, Tim Rathbone. Okay, Elisa. All right, you guys, uh, looks like we've got a few people, several likes already, which is way too kind, but I appreciate it. So Cheryl and I, last night, uh, what were we lying about, Cheryl? What what area? We were just getting ready to talk about the First Vision Masonic stuff, weren't we? Or were we? Well, I <laughs> think we were on um, Masonic Midrash. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Talking about that. 
Let, oh, yeah. hey, you know, the, the beautiful thing about this book is it doesn't matter. I'm serious. I'm going to go on screen. Can you see me on screen, Cheryl? I have not. Um, oh, so you're just on the phone. Here. It's all good. I can just open at random and start talking, and there's something good in this book. So I am so not kidding. Yeah. So that's <laughs> yes, what makes you it actually fun. can. Yeah, you can just open at random and start in. Absolutely. Hey, okay. So, so it, if you want to go on to start telling me about your, how did you guys, how did you guys put, uh, Hey, Mr. Nashville, welcome back. Uh, how did you guys put all these views on the Mormon Midrash? Now, the thing I loved about this chapter was it had so many, it was, it was like a multiple amount of parallels as opposed to just a singular topic like the Book of Mormon or the Book of Abraham. This had yeah. doctrines scattered all over throughout the course of Joseph's life. Uh, tell me about how you guys put this thing together. This was a blast to read. It was fabulous. Well, if Dan, Vogel, Dan Vogel's there, so let me just talk a little bit about his influence because I read a lot about um, when Dan Vogel talks about the Book of Mormon especially and the anti-Masonic influence in the Book of Mormon. And um, many people will talk about secret combinations in the Book of Mormon, but it seems like that's about the only thing that they will discuss, the only Masonic parallel that they'll come up with, or very few, um, mm -hmm. is the, the secret combinations. Um, right. So I wanted to add a little bit to that and show just how much um, Masonry influences the Book of Mormon. So I started with the Book of Mormon. Oh, absolutely. And then we go on yeah. to the other Mormon scriptures and do sure. the same thing. Now, this chapter was way... Um, a lot larger than it is today, um, but we could not include every parallel that there was. Um, I'm going to talk to Greg Coford. I'm going to talk to Greg Coford books about that. <laughs> I'm well, you know, you got to make it concise, but um, I think that we gave enough so that people can now see where it comes out. Um, sure. So let me just start a little bit with talking about Midrash. And uh -huh. um, the thing that's interesting about Midrash, it's a Jewish, um, like a um, interpretation, Jewish interpretation. What they do is they go and they look at biblical texts. And in order to explain biblical texts or add to um, texts that seem incomplete, they will add these little stories that aren't, um, you know, scriptural, but just little additions that um, expand on the story that um, tell a little bit more and help you have um, a fuller, um, a more complete idea of what the story means. Mm -hmm. And this is this Jewish technique. And um, Masons liked to use Midrash. They loved Jewish Midrash. They would go back and just suck it in, you know, just like because they loved to see this this midrash, and they did the same thing in developing ritual. Is they would take a scriptural passage, and then they would expand on the scriptural passage and tell stories about it and make it um, make it come alive, make it into a a, a passion play almost um, that uh, masons would. Um, would go through in the rituals. So when we talk about Joseph Smith and his use of Midrash, it's 
he uses Masonic midrash. He, um, his his midrash is very Masonic, as you'll see, um, and he will take and expand on biblical stories in a very Masonic way. So that's what um, you'll see in this uh, in this chapter. We start with the Book of Mormon, and then when we start um, just at the very beginning of the Book of Mormon, it starts at the reign of the biblical Zedekiah, right, in the Babylonian captivity. Yes. Uh -huh. Which, interestingly, yep. is the exact same period of time as the Royal Arch Degree, right? And yeah, so, that was a good right. parallel. That was. That was interesting, yeah. So when we when we start looking at the Book of Mormon and its parallels with, um, with Masonry, that's the very first thing is looking at that time period. And... Um, so in this chapter, we talk about um, the themes that they have, the themes of, um, of long lost, now found, escape and deliverance, um, the, and the Royal Arch degree and how it, um, how it parallels with the Royal Arch degree. We talk about the idea of Smiths, which is kind of cool. Um, really cool. Masonic Yes, Masonic Smiths are those that, you know, work with uh, metal and stone often, too. And um, it, it's kind of fun because we have Nephi, who's a smith, and we have um, we have later on, we have uh, the brother of Jared, who's a smith. And then just the connection it just happens to have with the Smiths, Joseph Smith's last name is very, very interesting. So... Um, the story, that. the story of Akarop was really interesting. Asleep with his sword lying by his feet, Jailbert takes up the sword and pierces the villain in the head and heart, then decapitates Akarop as bloody retribution for his treachery. That's the story of Nephi and yes. Laban, man. That was fantastic. Yes. I had no idea that story was in existence. And there's, I'm going to show this on the. Uh, on the screen while you keep talking, but there is the illustration for my audience of Akarop and his story. Keep going, Cheryl, yeah. go ahead. And um, I think that um, Masons back in Joseph Smith's day really recognized these things in a way that we don't, we don't know these stories. So we don't recognize the Masonic significance of Akarop. You know, we don't know who that is. Yeah. But, uh, Masons of the day really recognized it. And, um, I think Dan has talked a little bit about newspaper articles of the day who um, said that the Book of Mormon was um, anti-Masonic. So this is one of the reasons this story, you know, they're just, this is kind of a scary story of um, Masons, you know, this bloody retribution. And um, here we have that bloody retribution in the Book of Mormon. Right up and, front. Um, <laughs> But the interesting thing I found was um, looking at the um, looking at the newspaper articles of the day. They're kind of they go back and forth. Like some people say, "Oh, the Book of Mormon's anti-Masonic," and other people say, "Well, that's Masonic." Um, and they just kind of flip back and forth whether it's anti or whether it's pro Masonic. Mm -hmm. They just don't know what to make of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think that um, really the only reason, the only way that we can understand this um, conundrum in the Book of Mormon is that Joseph Smith really believed that we have a true Masonry and um, a corrupt Masonry. Mm -hmm. So when he's talking in the Book of Mormon about um, secret combinations and 
um, such, then he's talking about the masonry that's become corrupt. Uh-huh. And he's definitely against that. But yet he believes there's a pure masonry. There is a pure masonry and that that needed to be restored. And we do see like the, um, the true masons, you know, the Nephi's, the Lehi's, those are, you know, your true masons and they go all the way back to Adam. Mm-hmm. And um, then your corrupt masons and these people that become corrupt in the Book of Mormon. But there's just so many just little um, correspondences that, um, that go Yeah, I, I'm really appreciating all these, all these, uh, and, and I agree, some of them are just somewhat small, not totally overly significant, but when they all add up with uh, so many of them that are absolutely mind-blowingly huge, the overall arcing impression is just wow. (laughs) Really amazing. So yeah, keep going, keep going. This is great. What page are you on? Um, Oh, I'm just kind of paging through this chapter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I see the one on the Smiths. Let's see. Smith. Um, So let's like go to 128, page 128, because this was really cool. The Beehive. What about the illuminating stones? That was a good one. Okay, let's go to the Beehive. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm just saying. (laughs) Um, One thing that was really cool was looking at a Masonic tracing boards. because these were used in masonry to illustrate like illustrations of the rituals. I'm showing that tracing board in your book while you're talking. That way they'll see it. Yeah. So go ahead and describe it in detail, Cheryl. We'll all see it. With the Noah's Ark. So you, yeah. You're looking at that and you see the down at the bottom there's the ark and then you see two pillars right above that. And there's the Tower of Babel and these um, implements, you know, the rough ashlar, the... Um, the um the the square is there there's um several implements uh, masonic implements but i mean just looking at that you can see um book of mormon stories in that you know yeah um in that tracing board so um let's see Uh, to me it brings to mind the story of the brother of jared with the stones that he fashions the lord touches them with his finger so that they'll glow and then we talk about some um, Jewish midrash that has to do with that and how it fits along with that story. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, Hugh Nibley used to get into these um, in a big way. <laughs> he did, didn't he? Yeah, he liked these old yeah. legends and stories. Actually, yeah, in his yeah. older age, he actually, uh, especially in his final book, One Eternal Round, he actually gave Freemasons much more credit than he did in his earlier 60 years of, of scholarship. Nibley, I, th- I think, I got the impression that he ended up being much more friendly, not only to the Hermeticists, the Alchemists, and the Kabbalah, but to the Freemasons. His book, One Eternal Round, is sensational on that. So pretty good, pretty interesting. Yeah, so a lot of um, apologists, and I use that word not um, in a denigrating way, I just use it as a descriptor that, um, you know, people do Mormon apology and um, apologia, and when they do that, they like to um, reach back into the ancient past and show um, how Mormonism in the Book of Mormon, um, and especially temple ceremony, um, uh, has these parallels with the ancient past. 
And I think that there, I don't quite understand it that much, why this is such a fascination. But um, I think what I'm thinking is that they believe it, that if they can show that there is a correspondence to ancient past, Joseph didn't know about it, that it must have been revealed to him. You know, um, that that's kind of the argument, right? It is, um, it is, it is more or less. Yeah, if he couldn't have known about it and yet he put it in his book, that shows it's an authentic ancient book. The problem right. with that argument, yeah. yeah, go <laughs> ahead. No, go ahead, please. There is definitely a problem with that because, <laughs> well, one, I think a big problem is the fact that we don't have the, the pure temple ceremony from the ancient past. All, but all of these correspondences that you're pointing to in the ancient past are like apostate pieces of the puzzle right sure so yeah, yeah so i don't know why you would want to go back and and connect with apostate pieces of but the other thing is that um uh freemasons were known to dig these things they loved ancient um they loved and and antiquity and they'd go back and they'd find all these things and they'd bring them into rituals and they would talk about them and they would talk about them in lodge and they were very very interested in those and they write I, about them i think that's why when freemasonry's when Freemasons joined Mormonism, they really liked the high priests group because that's nothing but BS and, and chucking and jiving. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist, but no, no, they, they really did bring out that legendary stuff. And that is what, let's be frank, that is what makes the study of the mysteries so dadgum much fun that's why i did my earlier yeah. podcast this morning on the uh the tarot card and, and lightning and stuff because that stuff's fun we don't give a dang if it's literal or not it's just yeah. interesting yeah. There, there is an allegorical there is a metaphorical there is a symbolic there is a spiritual and there is a literal way to look at stuff why not look at some of the other ways and see how that comes out it's just fun yeah is, and so. i think that that was a fascination with joseph smith as well and that he got this from the masons um you know and i i think that a lot of times if we see correspondences in what joseph smith is doing with ancient with antiquity it's not necessarily that he and, and i don't want to say that he didn't get it from revelation because i do believe that as a, an sure. active latter-day saint i believe that joseph smith had revelation um received revelation um, but you can believe either way, reading our book, I think you can believe either way, but you don't have to sure. say that these ancient correspondences meant that Joseph didn't know. I think that he got a lot of these through Freemasonry. That's what I think. And, and it so. seems to me like you've presented the material as such, uh, just like George Miller told me just a couple hours ago on his pod. Man, I've been busy with podcasts this weekend. This is my 10th one. The, this is the art stone, the master art stone of my art of uh, the 10th one, you know. But uh, you no, Clinton was telling me that, uh, oh, what was I lying about now? Can't remember, I lost my trend of thought. Oh heck, I can't remember now. That's all right. You're breaking up, Cheryl. Okay. Uh, you, is this better? 
Yeah, can you move your phone just a little bit? Okay. There you go. There you go. That's good right there. Okay. Okay. Oh, yeah. So um, let's go on to um, the beehive. Because uh, that's so interesting to me because we have um, the beehive is um, very yeah. much used in Mormonism. And still today we use the, the beehive is a symbol that we really relate to in Mormonism. Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing to me about the beehive was that we have um, a cult or secret, as you like to say, <laughs> as you like to make sure everybody knows. Sure. Um, a cult. Um, You're breaking up again, Cheryl. In Masonry and in Mormonism, you have this hive and this, this, um, um, uh, what do I want to say? Um, uh, where people, or people, um, you know, uh, industry. That's what I was trying, There's the word. I was trying to look for. Industry. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. a hive of Masonry. The beehive as a symbol of, of industry. Yeah. Oh, your voice is breaking up again. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> now I think I lost you. you okay, I'm gonna, oh, there you are. I'm going to move to a different place. Okay, okay. Is that good? Uh, so far, yeah. Keep talking. Okay. So, um, uh, you're, bre- you're breaking up again. Darn it. Sorry. <laughs> actually dig into, right? You you're you've been breaking up for the last one minute. We didn't hear hardly a thing you said about the beehive. Oh dear. Okay, I go into a different room now. <laughs> I know your reception okay. there is a little rough, so it's all right. We'll That's figure this scary. out. How's this scary? That's good so far. Keep talking and I'll let you know. Okay. All right. Well, um, what I like about beehive, yeah, you also happen to cult meaning. Your your voice is breaking up again. Oh dear! Oh my! I don't know what to do? I I don't either. Um, can you get higher by any chance or more open? I don't okay. know. Okay, let me get higher. How's this? So far, so good. Oh. Keep talking. Okay. <laughs> Every time I start talking about the beehive, it goes out. <laughs> it didn't this time, so keep talking. Oh, okay. I heard every so, word that um, time. <laughs> so we have the beehive symbol of um, industry, and we also have the cult meaning that's um, just below the surface that you have to kind of dig out, right? Yep. So rather than um, and I talk about in the book that um, Freemason George W. Bullman meant um, this meaning was kept from entered apprentices, but as you go on to the third degree, you realize that it's resurrection or the return of the soul. Yes. I think that Brigham Young saw this. Um, I talk about that in the book, too, that he saw this um, kind of cult meeting. I, and he really liked and the. I think Joseph was really. Uh, you're breaking up just a little bit. Okay. Resay what you thought about Brigham Young doing. Um, that his order and government of the kingdom of God 
you know, with the beehives. Yeah, he yes, he established the kingdom of God with that symbol, the beehive. Now that's really interesting. Yeah. So um, the other thing about ritual is that I think that Joseph Smith understood um, that um, these people were doing during the time of Joseph Smith was a time when Masonic ritual was being created. It wasn't um, already oh. set in stone. It was still yeah. flexible and adaptable during this time, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, and people were still making um, making up ritual, and Joseph Smith was doing what ritualists did. Yes, you know, that's what they did. There's nothing odd. Like he was doing so. Right, there's nothing odd with the way he yeah. did stuff. Yeah, you're cutting out on me too. Um, hmm. So. Well, shame on me. I hope this is going to work. Um, I do too, Dot. So, um, we keep going, you know, we have, so we have the Book of Mormon, um, and we have the Joseph Smith translation, which he also adds Midrash. That's exactly what the Joseph Smith translation is, is that it, he goes through the Bible and he adds to it, explains, and um, he harmonizes. and Not based and, on any kind of ancient manuscript discovered at all midrash is just basically i mean in a in a rough sense storytelling right yeah yeah, yeah. and uh, explanation and revision and crafting i will tale. never forget i will never forget the argument that kevin barney one of the mormon apologists i can still truly respect the man is just brilliant and he's straightforward and honest had an argument with robert millet over this subject is the Joseph Smith translation a midrash and Millet was trying to get Kevin Barney in trouble with the church apparently because he said it was a midrash and Millet was seriously offended and he said it was a revelation yeah. <laughs> and, and Barney said yeah all right midrash revelation whatever you can look at it in that way if you are a believer you can see sure. that you know it was revelation that came to joseph smith that helped him expand on these stories or you can think that he was a um you know a ritual genius that he was able to from his own um you know um intellect pull these things out so you can you can see it both ways sure um, sure depending on just how you believe. But I think he was very inspired that, you know, these, these midrash, but he used um, these techniques. Yeah. Yeah. Christian King through these, these kinds of techniques. So now they used to say that this use of these, they used to say this use of these kind of techniques uh, was almost apostate and the church discouraged that. But I think now it's gaining a little bit more of a mature, approach to its history where they are recognizing there legitimately are other interpretations and views that we can't just throw out because we personally don't like them. This is what I see the future of this book doing, changing the dialogue within the church and without the church and with the church, I hope. Well, I really hope it does too, because I don't think you have to be afraid of seeing Masonic influence in Joseph Smith's work. Um, yeah. And that's the big thing, why people don't like that, because to talk about 
most people don't like to talk about um, Masonry and Mormonism because of the fear that they have that that might mean that Joseph Smith is not inspired, but it really doesn't have to have that connotation at all. Well said. Well said. So, yeah. I mean, just reading through this chapter, you can see all the, you know, all the different scriptures. We go through all the scriptures um, and Doctrine and Covenants. We have the same, you know, kind of um, uh, Midrash making going on. Yeah. Degrees of glory with the, priesthood, with keys. Yeah, the Almighty is the organizer. I thought that was wonderful. I did not realize that had a Masonic precedence. That was cool. Not a creator out of Ex Nihilo, but an organizer. I loved that. That was cool. I'm on page 132 with that one. Are you still there? Uh-oh. Have I lost you? Okay, now I gotta move around again. Yeah, it must be the wind. Are you hearing me now? A little bit. Try try to move a little bit to the left. <laughs> to the left, okay. I'll go to the left. <laughs> there, you're loud and clear. You're loud and clear. I'm serious. Okay. <laughs> left works. Okay. All right. So yeah. Um I, I won't go through every single one in here in this chapter because everyone can read this, but um, right, right, but, but just going through like Enoch's story, um, that was sensational. This is something Mason's Let, let's just tell them that was sensational, yeah, yeah. And so, um, Joseph Smith's, um, he related so much to Enoch as well in a Masonic way, I think, yeah, yeah, he really so. did. Yeah. Um, and so, then, and then the other thing, uh, I, I'm on 138. Following uh, the Saints, John, I yeah. really enjoyed how you, if there's two Johns that Joseph Smith was truly influenced by and with, it was John the Baptist and John the Revelator. And that yeah. just happens to be the two most important New Testament characters in Freemasonry exactly. from, from their legends. Yeah. Ha, that was just wonderful how you guys showed the parallels and brought that stuff out. That was yeah. just delightful. Yeah. So, I mean, I just feel like these whole, all of these things just show his intimate familiarity with Freemasonry and the things that Masons were fascinated with. Joseph Smith was also fascinated with those same things. Even though he ended up uh, utilizing them in a little bit different manner, perhaps, or he explained something, or he might have added something extra or whatever, but that was the method anyway. So rather than a defect, it is a, it's okay because exactly, that's Sarah, how it was strength. done, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. That is a strength. And I think that's really what Joe was always saying that, you know, that Joseph Smith took these elements and that the way he used them was just amazing. Um, he used them in a little different way than the Masons did. And um, he gave them a, a very cool meaning. <laughs> so, well put. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So let me go on. Sure. And talk absolutely. about um, 
Because we did talk a little bit about, um, oh, yeah, I'll get to the Book of Abraham too. But we did talk a little bit about um, how ritual was being formed at the time, right? Mm -hmm. And there were um, Egyptian rituals and, and Native American rituals that these Masons would um, would create at the time. And so Joseph Smith, right about these same years, was creating ritual for uh, Mormonism. And um, he also, I think Sam Brown has talked about this a lot. Um, he was uh, creating ways that he could draw his followers and um, keep his followers very close and very connected to him. Mm -hmm. So we have um, these organizations that he has, that he creates, like we have the Danites, and then we have the Relief Society, and then we have the, the Quorum of the Anointed and the Council of Fifty and all yeah. of these several, um, I think there were, a bunch of Mormon leaders that were connected to Joseph Smith in like four or five different ways where they belonged to these different organizations. The Nauvoo Legion was also another one. That's another and one. Yeah, very good. So the School really of the Prophets. Yes, yeah. School of the Prophets is another one. Yes, yes. So when you look at these, when you look down, drill down and look at these organizations, they had um, these ritual features where they would have um, – oaths and covenants that they would make to each other. They would have a scriptural backstory that they would use. Just like when you're when you're creating a Masonic ritual, you start with a scriptural backstory and then you have um, you have oaths and covenants, you have um, names, uh, you have um, steps, degrees that you go through, um, and catechisms. Uh, so there are several different um, aspects of Mormon ritual. So mm -hmm. If you're going to create a Mormon ritual, you're going to do those things. And when you look at Joseph Smith's um, different organizations, you see that he does all these things, right? Yes. And so that's why it's so fascinating for me. It started with my, my, um, just my um, aha moment with this started with the Danites and that's why I love the Danite chapter yeah. because um, I was trying to figure out well what was he doing with Danites and many people see the Danites as just being this like vigilante you know kind of <laughs> they don't like to see Joseph Smith as connected with Danites um, oh he, did, he didn't mind though <laughs> <laughs> but he was very connected with yes, it yes he was he, um, he created this as, I think, a ritual. I think there was a Danite ritual that um, went on here, where we had a we had a scriptural backstory, which yeah. Danites are scriptural. We have you know, Danites in the Old Testament, and um, um, this is really a fascinating story as you read through this chapter about the Danites to see that, you know, the ritual come to life. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, it, it literalized the ritual. Yeah. You showed yeah. that several times too. That was fascinating. <laughs> yeah. And that's also what Joseph Smith liked to do is he liked to bring, like Clinton was talking about this this afternoon is he liked to bring an esoteric idea into literal, um, you know, literal being. Yeah. So, um, his initiation, his Masonic initiation, was something very spiritual, 
but he brought that into a literal being when he made a ritual, a temple ritual, um, an initiation ritual, so that yeah. people could go through that and um, experience what he had experienced. Hey, I, I learned something about the mysteries uh, just this last week that really reverberates with what you're just saying about what Joseph Smith was doing and accomplishing. We, we have a tendency to separate the spiritual from the physical. The mysteries understood there are differences, but they never separated them. They kept them together. And sometimes they would use the, the metaphor, the analogy, whatever, on the symbolism is all. Other times they would literalize the stuff, but it was actually yeah. all sorts of an overall process with all of the various characteristics, your guys' idea here on the eternal bonds between the people and the eternity of matter, etc. We see Joseph Smith keeping the physical with the spiritual. Yeah. It's real interesting how that it's real interesting how that has a Masonic provenance. That was shocking to me personally. I thought that was unique to Joseph Smith, this idea of the, the bond between heaven and earth, between man and woman, between men as brothers, and, yeah. and the eternity of matter uh, was pre-Einsteinian and that it was never destroyed or created and all that jazz. Pretty interesting how it appeared to me that Joseph Smith came across so scientifically ahead of his time. And of course you have the cooks, Melvin Cook and his son, they really went blitzoid crazy on the science. And now you have the ridiculous stuff like the Kolob theorem by Hilton or what's his name? Hilton. Like anyway, so, but, but the sign and then Witzel, Joseph Smith is a scientist, but yeah. this is the basis upon guess who? Freemasonry, who yeah. were who were also so, um, yeah. So um, after I had like kind of picked this out of the Danites, I was um, thinking along the lines of the Book of Abraham, and this is where I, I really felt like this was um, an amazing insight that I got um, because. It's so hard to understand what Joseph Smith is doing with the Book of Abraham, and I've read a lot of from Dan Vogel. I've read a lot from uh, different people who have written on the Book of Abraham. You've done a lot, Carrie, on the Book of Abraham, mm -hmm. um, trying to explain what were, what were these Kirtland Egyptian papers? What were they all about? Um, everybody knows that they were that Joseph Smith thought they were important. But mm -hmm. why? You know, what was, why were they important and what was he doing? Because it, it made him look good. <laughs> well, we just don't understand that. And That's so true. what I realized was that with the Kirtland Egyptian papers, Joseph Smith is creating ritual. And so we look at all those aspects that I just talked about and we have, he starts with Abraham. And so he has this scriptural backstory and he makes the scriptural backstory of Abraham, you know, on the, on the lion couch and and uh, being sacrificed and uh so he starts with that and then he has degrees he goes through um some words where he talks about different degrees of meaning that these words have um 
And then he has, um, let's see, what else he has? Signs, tokens, penalties, and these facsimiles you can see. Um, as I'll, you know, you go through the book and you can see those. Um, I bring those out. Um, let's see. Let's see what else. Um, Hold on. I'll get the uh, picture up here. Yeah, baby. This is the uh -huh. stuff we're talking about. See, that? that's called a piece of papyri. Piece uh -huh. of papyri. <laughs> So degrees, you have these degrees, and um, you were talking about mean, penalties and facsimile too. There's facsimile number yeah. two. There you go. And then you have um, this fascination with the grand word, and that's the whole, you know, idea behind these rituals, um, Masonic rituals, is that you're trying to find the Masonic word. Um, and that is definitely in the Book of Abraham in those um, in the workings that Joseph Smith is doing. So he's, I feel like if you see him as a prophetic restorer and creating ritual, and I think there's a lot more work to be done on this as well that people can um, dive into. Um, but if they will start with the idea, just an idea that um, Joseph Smith is creating ritual, what could we do? How can we see? Um, these these Egyptian papers in a way that we've never seen them before. Yeah, and and he he did. I just want to reiterate this because this definitely has to do with the creation of the ritual in the papyri, not the papyri. I'm sorry, in the alphabet and grammar, as Dan Vogel demonstrated, and then I put in my videos. And here is a beautiful picture of it. You guys put in of the Adamic characters from uh -huh. the Adamic language. Now that was critical because it all begins with not Joseph Smith, uh -huh. not Jesus Christ, not Adam. King Solomon. It goes <laughs> to Adam. Right. So right. Joseph Smith tying it back that far. And we know George Oliver took it all the way into the pre-existence with the angels. They were the Masons. They're the ones yeah. that gave it to Adam. That's amazing stuff. Yeah, uh, And it's really cool, too, because like people don't understand why um, some of this stuff that was in the Kirtland papers he was working with before he even got the papyri. Exactly. You know? yeah. So what does that mean? What is that, you know? How can that happen? Yeah. <laughs> and if you see that he was creating ritual around this, then um, it, it starts to make sense. Yeah. So, yeah. And then um, the Relief Society. Um, let me see if I can turn to that too. Um, so yeah, um, I this chapter has a lot of the ideas in this chapter I published in a Journal Mormon History article um, of talking about Masonic correspondences with the Relief Society. But also, um, I think that you don't, unless you understand like the Masonic structure that he was using with the Relief Society, that it's really, it's difficult to, to get at really an understanding of what he's teaching the sisters here, you know? True. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So if, um, if you're understanding this also kind of, and maybe not as much a ritual as, um, these other organizations, um, but it's it's a Masonic like organization, like a fraternal organization. This is a sororal organization that um, that the sisters can belong to. 
Um, so, um, the whole, um, the whole thing with the Relief Society is just fascinating because there was tension with Emma Smith, with Joseph and Emma in the Relief Society. Um, Con concerning the polygamy. Right. And I, right. I think that both of them, they didn't, they weren't exactly on the same page with what was going to happen with the Relief Society. And so you can see this going back and forth in this fighting. And that's um, very instructive as well, because when Joseph Smith has tension with Emma, you can see what he's trying to do versus what she thinks the Relief Society should be. Yeah. Yeah. No okay. kidding. So, and it's not necessarily, and I did talk about that the Relief Society is protecting a secret that Joseph Smith has, which is polygamy. Um, it, but it, it goes further than that. It goes much further than that because Joseph Smith, as I said, he has all of his leaders and his people that he's drawing in to these societies to connect him and to, um, to keep those people... Um, you know, connected and um, I don't want to say under control, but just well, bind, bound together. It was bound, a it was yes. a priesthood binding. Yeah, uh, is yes. how you guys put it, and, and that's how Joseph Smith described it. Yeah, right. what what is sealed on earth is sealed in heaven. What is bound on earth, is, and this goes back to also the the other Masonic concept that was so fascinating is this principle of keys. Yeah. Yeah. That was fun that you guys brought that up. So the keys, the binding, the sealing, all of that goes together. And it's all Masonic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. I, I wanted to, uh, if if I could, for just a brief moment, uh -huh. real quick, I I did this in my in my uh, review with uh, George, and I want to do this again here just to make sure. I will show a different panel this time. Uh, I have a student. In fact, it's Gerardo from Mormon Stories. He helped me with my Book of Abraham presentation when we presented on Mormon Stories. And uh -huh. he said that his teacher would utilize Hugh Nibley's message of the Joseph Smith papyri as evidence for the authentic antiquity of the Mason or the or the uh, Mormon endowment. And what he would show, and I'm going to show my audience this, this is the second edition of the message of the Joseph Smith papyri. This is a different one than I showed in the earlier interview, but you can see these guys are doing what is called the ritual embrace. The embrace of deification. I want you to take a good look at that because this demonstrates the apotheosis of man, which, of course, is a unique doctrine. Joseph Smith had never heard of it except by revelation until he got involved with Freemasonry, and this is in the Method Infinite. This is called so, in masonry the five points of fellowship. Joseph so jo Joseph Smith did not jump out of his environment with a revelation about some antiquity concept, and the apologists who jump over the common Joseph Smith environment to get to the ancient parallels 
that method just doesn't work when we know wow. where he got the ideas. And this is just one example that I'm using. True, it's in the endowment, but it's also pictured. So that's why I'm using it. But well, also, Brent Metcalf has said that, too, is that you cannot skip over Freemasonry and go directly to the ancient past because um, Joseph's, like, for example, his five points of fellowship are much more similar to Masonic five points right um, in his um, right in his location and his time period than they are to the ancient past or even Freemasonry back before that time, you know? Yeah. So yeah. he's definitely getting it, you know, from, and, and this is something that I found one of the um, benefits I have had as a, um, as a practicing Latter-day Saint um, from studying Freemasonry is I understand my religion a lot better um, through Freemasonry and the five points of fellowship is a prime example because I didn't really understand what that, uh, what that was all about. Um, when I went through the temple, you know, mm -hmm. it's, um, it's, it's kind of meaningless. We're not explained. The symbolism is not explained to us. And so when I, um, saw what it meant in Freemasonry, that was very meaningful to me. And then I really, um, I felt that I could understand what these five points were there for and why Joseph Smith had put them where he did in the ritual and what it was supposed to point our minds to, what it was supposed to mean. And so that was really fascinating for me. That was helped me in my own worship um, to understand the Masonic symbolism behind all that. Yeah. And, and like I told, I just now uploaded a new uh, verbal podcast on my backyardprofessor.org. It's on the Mormon endowment as a placebo for the purpose. What turned me off really, truly, and it was a time when I really wanted to know, is when I was in the celestial room, I had gone through the ritual. I was sitting there contemplating, and a, one of the gentlemen came in, all dressed in white, and so I rose and asked him the question that was on my mind to explain to me something about the endowment. He goes, oh, no, 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 we don't talk about that here. Even in the temple? I, I said, what? We're in the celestial room in the temple. Yeah. I, I just went through the endowment. Where are we going to talk about it? Well, we don't talk yeah. about it. And besides, you need to get out of here. We've got another group coming through. Now, that's not the yeah. point at all. They missed the point for that. But again, I want to show another picture, a very important picture here. This is the late Roman bronze, the Jupiter Heliopolitamus with his uplifted right arm, and it's a restored drawing of a gilded bronze statue 15 inches high. It's courtesy of the Louvre. This is another one of the pictures that is utilized to teach Mormon youth and students that the gestures are authentically ancient. And so those same gestures, and I'm not going to tell you what they mean because that's it's a sacred thing, but those same gestures in the endowment are ignored that those same gestures are in Freemasonry. And, and so, again, to jump over the contemporary to get to an ancient parallel, yeah. 
it would almost strengthen the apologetic effort. And I'm thinking of Jeff Bradshaw, a good friend of mine, very intelligent man who's writing a book. It basically is a counterweight to yours where yeah. he's going to focus on the ancient aspects. And again, I suspect he's mostly going to focus like you said at the first, just only on the endowment instead of the yeah. entire context. But just yeah. to focus on the ancient materials, you can't skip the contemporary. We agree. We yeah. acknowledge there are ancient parallels and usages because this mystery is from hoary antiquity, the pre-existence, if you want to follow George Oliver. So, of course, we're going to find parallels. How could Joseph Smith have known it? Well, now, three people, Bruno, Swick, and Matursky, uh, have shown us how. It was in his backyard. That's yeah, just as important, right? It is. And yeah. I don't think, you know, Brad Kramer said this the other day. He said that we don't have any problem um, seeing correspondences in Mormonism and Christianity. We don't say things like, um, oh, they're using baptism in Mormonism. They got that straight from Christianity. What are they doing? You know, they stole it. You know, we don't say that. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but we say it about masonry. Yeah. So it that's just all. seems so strange that we would that we would have this feeling towards um, utilizing these symbols from masonry, but no problem with the same kind of thing from Christianity, you know? Um, isn't that strange? Hey, Dan, Dan has a comment that I want to share. Mason, okay. Masonry helped me understand the temple endowment. This is true. I, I thank you, yeah. Dan. That, that is a, that, that is what Cheryl just said. And that's what I'm saying as well is, yeah, there is a, we learn in some respects. And again, we understand it's Joseph's creative adaptation of some of the Masonic ritual. Yeah, we get that. And it's not exact. Yeah, we get that. But what, what I discovered was it explained more of the whys than any yeah. Mormon ever did to me. Is that what you found? Yes, absolutely. And seeing it as initiation um, was very important to me. I didn't realize that. I didn't realize what initiation was mm -hmm. until I studied masonry. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, that's fun stuff. And you have to understand that in order to understand the endowment. And then to see the way that and Joe loved to do this, to see the way that um, Joseph put these, arranged these elements in the endowment, Mm -hmm. uh, for example, you have the three uh, distinct knocks, where in masonry those happen like at the beginning of the ritual where the person is coming into the lodge room and there's three distinct knocks in there. Yeah, the three distinct knocks. Your words right. kind of, okay, that's what you're talking about. I'm just repeating that because your words broke out just at those words. So she's talking about okay. three distinct knocks. Okay, keep going. Right. Right, so those three distinct knocks in Freemasonry uh, happen at the beginning of the ritual, and they enter the lodge, right? Mm -hmm. So, but Joseph Smith put it at the end of the ritual where they represent death and the entrance into the oh. other world. And so, to see the little changes he made and what he was trying to, the way he was like using that symbol in a very Mormon way, is fascinating. Yes, it is. 
I I have not quite caught that. I'm sure you said it, but it, it, did you put that in the book? Yeah, I think it's in the book somewhere. I might have been reading so fast to try to get it done so I could do a decent overall. (laughs) But I am going the second time through it much, much slower. I'm only still in chapter two. So anyway, now that is fun. That is really interesting. So again, we see that creative adaptation inspiring, I would propose, just like uh, Dr. Letursky told me. He said, I have no problem saying that Joseph Smith was inspired, that that's not even hardly an issue. Just look at what the guy did, what he put together. But that has nothing to do with whether the church is true or not. See, they've made it seem like that's the approach, you, the only approach that you have an option to take. Uh, right. you, you and Joe and Nick and others have, have, have helped me understand there is a broader, deeper context uh, with which we can give credit where credit's due without feeling guilty for not going back to church. And, and that's pretty straightforward, but that's what happens. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah. Yeah. So then um, I guess the last thing I really wanted to talk about was, because um, we haven't really talked about this at all, I think with you, Carrie, maybe you have, but I haven't listened to all of your podcasts. All ten of them, <laughs> but um, have you talked about the um, him uh, Joseph Smith's uh, lodges that he created in Nauvoo and um, the Grand Lodge that was um, contemplated? Nick and I touched on that. Okay, not much, but we touched on that. You go ahead and share your ideas. I'd love to hear them. Truly. So um, when I was looking at the lodges in. Nauvoo and the environs, those um, lodges in Illinois and Iowa, um, I discovered that there were more lodges than we realize. You know, we just talk about, we have the Nauvoo Lodge, we have Hellman Nye Lodge, we have the um, the two lodges across the river, but we don't, Keokuk and what was the other one, Rising yeah. Sun Lodge. Right. Um, but there were other contemplated lodges that the Mormons were working on. And those come out in the um, lodge records. And that's going to be an interesting thing for people to look at those chapters where we talk about the different lodges that the records um, show that, like, they will talk about um, a slate of officers that um, for a a proposed Hiram Lodge um, or other proposed lodges that they have in mind. Um, so they had in mind more lodges than were actually um, that we even know about. So uh, we have possibly even up to nine lodges that were contemplated in um, these areas. Wow. And um, what Joseph Smith was trying to do was to um, come up with, and, and the um, church um what are those little things that the come they come out with the the little um, deacons uh, to collect the tithing? No, no, the church has little um, uh, talks about on on their online. They have little talks about different aspects of like polygamy or Freemasonry or whatever. Right. And so and so they talk about <clears throat> in their one on Freemasonry. They talk about how. Joseph Smith was wanting to, the reason why he joined the lodge in Nauvoo 
they say, is because he was trying to make friends because he oh, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. was trying to um, curry favor with the other Masons in, you know. The, that That's um, a pretty superficial yeah. view. Yeah. Yeah. And we know actually that that's not what he was doing because no. he did a lot of things to alienate those people. <laughs> and he would not have. He, he did to things friends. to make them kill him. <laughs> <laughs> if he was wanting to make friends, he would not Boy. have done some of the actions he did with the lodges. Yeah. Yeah. So we know that that's not the reason. So what was he doing? Well, he was restoring true Freemasonry. And so if he thought that Masonry as it existed in the United States at the time had become corrupted or had become spurious, what would he have done to restore Masonry? And so what I think he was doing was he was building up these lodges and then he was um, uh creating rituals to populate um, these things. And then he was um, contemplating a grand lodge. And we have this um, straight out in the minutes where they talk about um, having a Mormon grand lodge. And it would have been very easy to do because they had enough. Of course, they had way many Masons. They had enough Masons oh, to yeah. do it and enough lodges to do it. All yeah. they would have needed was someone, one lodge to recommend them and well, Grand Lodge to be their sponsor, and then they could have had, um, you know, this Mormon Grand Lodge. And um, if Joseph Smith had, and Hiram was the Grand Master of the Nauvoo Lodge, if they had had the power in this one Grand Lodge, um, they may have been able to um, really affect Freemasonry as it existed at the time. Yeah. Um, they, they also were contemplating, Masonry at the time was also contemplating a, a Baltimore convention was to um, get together and like standardize the work. Mm -hmm. And so they wanted to, they wanted to get all the lodges to come together and um, sort of standardize um, their rituals. You don't think the Mormons would have done that, would you, do you? I think they were trying to get control over that yes. and that they would have then had, um, you know, a say in, in how the, the how to standardize it. Yeah. 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 I see where you're going with that. Yeah. Yeah. Because that, that would have, so many... yeah, well, I was just saying that would appear to me to make real good sense. The direction you're, you're going with that. that that's interesting that it, it almost just did not matter what the Mormons did. They were making all of their neighbors absolutely terrified and worried. Yeah. Politically, yeah. culturally, religiously, doctrinally, ritually, uh -huh. you name it, man. Right. Isn't that right. fascinating? Yeah. Yeah. And they must have had power to be able to at least um, have the appearance of being able to do it or else people wouldn't have been afraid of that, you know? Oh, excellent point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, here again, we see this, we, we kind of see this principle that uh, we have a, uh, we have a legendary ritual, which amazingly enough, through his genius, let's give the man credit, he was able to literalize the ritual into manifest physical reality. That's pretty impressive. He did that quite often, it seems like. And that's where the terror came from, from his neighbors and friends and, and 
well, even family members, as far as that goes. So. Are you still with us? I am still here. Oh, okay. Yeah, now you sound way far away. Oh, no. Oh, there you go. There you go. That was beautiful. Stay right where you were. Well, Carrie, is there anything else you wanted to ask me about the book or um, any other observations? I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what. Let's turn this over to the audience for a minute. Do you have a few minutes to field a yeah. couple of questions? What do you guys sure. think? What question would you like to ask Cheryl? Uh, that we could talk about. That would be fun to see what's going on. See, Dan, okay, uh, it had, I don't see, okay, Joseph thought he was the Buddha on the road. <laughs> okay, here's a, here's a response from Dan Vogel. Perhaps you can comment on this. Oh, now okay. it disappeared. He says, to George Oliver, the mysteries were the spurious masonry. To Joseph Smith, all masonry was spurious. I don't suspect you would agree with that much, would you? And I'm, um, and I'm I, not trying I, I to cause a fight. Dan, I think maybe Dan is talking about the masonry as it existed right there in his, in his time and locality. I think that's what he's talking about. And I would agree with that, that that Joseph Smith did think that masonry, oh, I don't think he thought all masonry was spurious. I think he thought that it had become apostate, but that at one time it was a pure, it had a pure form uh -huh. in much the way he felt about Christianity, you know. Okay, he has further said now, Joseph Smith's position on masonry in Nauvoo isn't different than in the Book of Mormon. So I think that's where you guys are beginning to differ just a little bit because you're saying the masonry in Nauvoo certainly would have differed from the Book of Mormon. No, as, actually, as, I, I, yeah, I agree or, with Dan on that would. one. That I, I feel like that um, that Joseph had a um, the same view of masonry all along in his life. He didn't change. From, oh yeah. Okay. You know, at one time that he fought, he he fought masonry. He didn't like masonry, and then at another time he decided to join the lodge. I don't think that happened. I think he had a consistent view of masonry all along. That he felt that masonry had become corrupted, and that he was there to restore it and to fix it, to get it back into its pure form. Uh huh. Okay. Here's. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. It does. That's a very good. Okay. Now there's two questions here. I want to field them both, if that's okay. Doug uh -huh. Vincent asks. She mentioned Freemasonry and magic as influences. What about the evangelical, the Methodist movement? Uh -huh. Yeah, we say that several times in the book. Is that there? Um, there were many influences on Joseph Smith happening. Christian influences. Um, you know, um, uh, different different things in his environment, I think, that he responded to. And um, I agree with all that. I have no problem with that. It's just that in this book, we do concentrate on what the Masonic influences were, you know. So I don't sure, sure. Yeah, th yeah I that's your disagree. focus. I don't disagree that, that he was very much influenced by other aspects. And Mr. Natural asks, Cheryl and BYP, I wonder what the role of esoteric ideas has for us today, besides understanding history better. Yeah, okay. I, I'd love to answer that one. Um, that's a great question. 
because for me, I very much regret um, some of the changes that have happened um, in Mormonism. You'll see that in my conclusion. Um, I, I was even told by one of my editors that I don't want to go into an elegy, you know, that <laughs> um, I did, because I, I really miss um, the esoteric um, aspect of Mormonism and the, the Masonic influence in there, and I miss a lot of the changes in the temple, I think, um, uh, I do best because I understand um, the reason behind them. But the problem is, is that the society that we live in today is not a society that understands symbolism. Um, they do not understand some of these things in the temple. And so I think the changes were pretty necessary because, for example, um, I feel the Five Points of Fellowship was very beautiful and very meaningful. Mm -hmm. um, but young people today just see it as something kind of weird where, you know, an old person is getting too close to your personal space, you know, and, and interesting, that, you know, and yeah. so it has lost its meaning and its beauty. Excellent so point. it needs to be changed. And if we believe in a church that's continuing revelation, we have to change that so it doesn't have a meaning that it was never intended to have. Yeah. But I feel sad that we have to do that because people just don't understand um, esotericism anymore or symbolism yeah. anymore. Now, my now my dear friend, T.O., T.O., thank you for showing up, brother. You're a good man. He asks you this, Cheryl. He says, why should we assume Joseph is influenced by Masonic instead of Rosicrucian myth? Can you get closer to your phone? You sound like you're a mile away. So, sorry. Um, how, how's this? Oh, that's better. Yes, thank you. Yes, um, there is some influence we see that may have come from Rosicrucianism, but um, we have to actually look at the, the masonry that was closest to Joseph Smith when we um, when we look at the influences. So um, we look at what was what was close around him and what his contemporaries were doing, what other um, Mormon Masons were involved in, and we just don't see a lot of Rosicrucianism um, right there at that time period in that place. Oh, that's that is an interesting point of view. Nice, very nice. Uh, let's see what else. Uh, and. Oh, thank you, Mark Crispin. Cheryl and BYP equals a winning team. Well, that's very nice of you. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Here's a good question from Elisa Galeen, Galeen that I would like to feel like you to field, if you would. Isn't plugging the Masonic influences back into the church just substituting one mythology for another? Okay, could you repeat that, Ian, for me? Sure, sure. Isn't plugging the Masonic influences back into the church just substituting one mythology for another? Hmm. I'm not sure exactly where she's coming from with that. Um, one mythology for another? What? I wonder what she means by that. <laughs> Elisa, could you explain what you mean by that? This is why I need to get my own stream yard so I can do yes. live phone calls instead. I'm working on that, I promise. I'm working on upgrading. Uh, oh, well, thank you, Mark Crispin. 
He says, much respect to you, Cheryl, and, and to Dan Vogel, and to some dingling on this side. <laughs> oh, here's what Elisa says. She says, one origin story for another. I, I mean, what's the, what's the point? What's the difference? He says, okay, they're so both mythology. Maybe we're substituting a Freemasonry origin story for another um, mythological origin story? Is that what she's saying? Well, apparently, Elisa, you, you probably just are saying that the Mormon story of creation is just as much mythology as the Masonic one, so what's the point of either one? Oh, I see am what I, she may be saying. Am I reading, I am I reading you right, Elisa? Yeah, Joseph Smith is so mythologized. Yet yeah, now that okay. he's mythologized by the Mormon leaders today, that if that's what you're meaning, yeah. absolutely. He's too mythologized. Yeah. 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 Um, I think maybe if we say that um, the church has a mythology behind its origin story and um, that there's also like a, a sort of a mytho mythological um, <clears throat> origin story with Freemasonry. Um, I think that's, um, that, um, like, okay, so I'm going to say, for me, one of the reasons why I am a Mormon mm -hmm. is because um, these uh, narratives in the church really appeal to me. The young boy going into the grove of trees to pray and find deity, and, you know, that's really appealing to me. You know, where can we find truth? How can we find truth? And that's a, um, a really cool origin story to me that I've internalized. Another one is the um, people who are kicked out of their homes and they go across the plains because they love their religion so much that they are willing to give up everything for it and to go find a new home. That's like a... Um, a wilderness story like we find in the Old Testament, and it's it's really appealing to me. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, um, I think that it's not that we're substituting necessarily one story for another, but um, but I think people are uncomfortable with um, with uh, symbolic stories. They want to know, well, I want to know exactly what happened, you know, um, at, when Joseph Smith was finding the book of mormon i want to know exactly where he dug and you know what i'm saying that's kind of a modern yeah. viewpoint yeah. we crave but, certainty and we're terrified of the unknown and uncertainty yeah, yeah. and so like um a, a masonic story of the unearthing of the book of mormon may not be exactly accurate but it teaches us in many things you know um so I don't know if that makes any sense, but well, well and then uh, Mosia does make an interesting comment. Symbolic stories are fine as long as they're presented that way. Well, I mean, but it, they they haven't always been presented that way in in masonry either. I mean, many sure. masons in, in Joseph Smith's day believed that those were actual history. Um, <laughs> history, and also just the telling of history was different. For example, um, mm -hmm. when somebody wanted to um, show that, that George Washington was an honest man, they told the story of him cutting down the cherry tree. Now, that wasn't an actual story. That was, you know, a, kind of a made-up story. But it taught a real truth about the man, that he was an honest man, you know. Mm -hmm. And so that's how people, I think, viewed history for many um, 
back sure. even before Joseph Smith's day is that when they told history, they were more into telling um, these um, all-encompassing truths rather than the way we think of history today. So, well, it's like uh, they say, Mormon or uh, Masonry is a system of allegory taught uh -huh. through symbols. It's not a little, I mean, when you get into the Jewish Kabbalah, I so promise with that loving husband of yours, he taught me above all else, the Kabbalah and the tarot cards. There's nothing literal in that. The Zohar, they're not talking literal history. That's the lowest rung of the ladder, but they are presenting and you will receive truth that does change your life and soul when you're ready to receive it. And that's fascinating. You have right. to almost experience it. I think it. she's saying that that's okay as long as it's presented as such, but that Joseph Smith didn't necessarily present it as such. And I'm just saying that that wasn't, um, a, that wasn't important to them back then like it is to us today. Uh-huh. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. 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 Uh, Doug Vincent makes a comment, literalism is killing the church today. And, oh. and, and on the side note, kind of on the flip side of that, Doug, uh, I, I get what you're saying, but I would also propose it's not so much literalism as the lack of a spiritual symbolic uh, angle within the church they want us all to all think alike. You can't do that with the symbolic. You darn sure can't do that with what is considered spiritual. Uh, you, you're not allowed. You are allowed to accept the parable of the uh, five virgins, five wise virgins, and five foolish virgins. You're allowed to say, well, no, that wasn't literal history as such. There's a lesson there. What you're not allowed to do is indicate to all of your followers in your congregation that my interpretation is the only one you're allowed to come to. Otherwise, I'm yeah. kicking you out. That's where the church errs in its hardcore. And I think that's what you would be interpreting. I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, Doug, but I think that's what you're meaning by literalism, aren't you? <laughs> so let's see who else says... Uh, Okay, uh, let's see. They're talking to each other. Oh, well, okay, hold it. Elisa Galeen says, we all know Aesop's fables are fables, but that doesn't change the moral of the story because we know lions don't talk. Exactly. To just simply get rid of the story simply because it says lions talk and you take the scientific approach. Well, we know scientifically lions can't talk. Therefore, throw out the story. That's foolish. That would be considered foolish. Okay, let's see. Uh, okay, and Lisa says, let's stop claiming mythological figures were real to tell a moral story and stop mythologizing real people. What would you say to that, Cheryl? I just would say that this is, um, I, I wonder if this person is a younger person than I am, um, because I feel that that's a very modern perspective, and um, I just didn't, earlier in my life, I didn't see that as, you know, as such an important, um, and I don't think in Joseph Smith's day they, they saw that as important either. I think that, like, for example, 
<clears throat> I talk about when in the first vision story, I talk about how it was very much ritualized and each of the different stories of, of the first vision were uh -huh. put into kind of sort of like a framework. And I don't think that they were all um, maybe exactly how it happened. And we have this preoccupation today of we want to know exactly how it happened. Well, that's not really necessary. We just need to know it was an initiation and we need to know the elements of initiation and we need to know how we can approach deity and this story tells us how we can and um i don't know interesting uh, uh -huh. yeah 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 i i i get your drift there that's did true that answer the question at all um it did i don't know if she's going to be satisfied or not but you sure <laughs> answered the question so way to go no no that's that's all good that's okay um what i'd like to do is uh, where was it? The uh, the thing here here's how here would be my contribution. Um, in your introduction, Jachen and Boaz on the woodpile. It was yeah. a terrific introduction because you gave us the story. The, the perspective, I'll say, from Franklin D. Richards, who was the last Nauvoo Mason in Salt Lake at the turn of the century, 1899. None of the church leadership at his end of life knew anything about Nauvoo Masonry. So he was afraid there was going to be a boatload of knowledge that was lost and he was exactly prescient in that. He was correct. So yes. he was attempting to at least give them a part of the actual heritage they had inherited without even knowing it. And it didn't work. There's a poignancy to this. <laughs> There's a... There's a, uh, this is a tragedy. It's a tragedy when any knowledge is lost, hence the power of the legend of Hiram Abiff, right? The lost word. So exactly. what we have here is the lost word in Mormonism. Joseph Smith attempted to restore that and Mormonism lost it again. Yes. Okay, so I'm glad I'm not seeing that different. I, I'm, I'm glad I'm not seeing that wrong. I'm glad I, yeah, that, that to me yes, just, that's a hell of an introduction. That was a beautiful way to open up this entire well, book. The conclusion, I think, is also saying the same thing. It is. It is. Yes. Yeah, that was uh, that was exquisite. So if that doesn't help encourage people to buy your book, I, I don't know what else I can do. I've made I've made ten videos now on this, and I'm nowhere near done either. Uh, but but really, truly, I, I've loved every minute of this uh, because it's such a breath of fresh air. And I mean, if my enthusiasm doesn't demonstrate to people that holy crap, the BYP he is really on fire with this, yeah, that's because it's a breath of fresh. I found a book that's meaningful and resonates with you. You don't have to become a Freemason. 
You don't have to go back into Mormonism. You don't have to stay away from Mormon. You don't have to leave Mormon. You don't have to do any of that. Right. Just appreciate the extra light and knowledge. Yeah, just see it in a different way. Right, 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 right. This is the kind of book that just thrills me to read and reread and reread. So uh, that's that's essentially what I wanted to get across with all these videos and give you authors a chance to express your view and then give someone who is a John Q public your view and then give another master mason, a former worshipful master of a lodge, your view. And it's just kind of, it's like a multifaceted, one of those uh, crazy, stupid disco tech balls, the mirrored balls with the lights flashing all over. Super duper excited. Oh, hey, wait a minute. Okay, okay. John Campbell has a good question for you, if I could ask you. Okay. Ask her if she has stronger belief in the mission of Joseph Smith or less belief. What, because of Freemasonry? You mean, John? I would say that, um, yeah, I'd say that Freemasonry gives me a strong belief in Joseph Smith. Um I, I, only because I know I see what he was doing with it. Um, before I knew what he was doing with it, I don't think it would have helped. But now that I see the many things he was trying to accomplish, it gives me um, um, a great idea of what he was all about, his prophetic mission, and that you know that gives me a lot of faith. Okay, yeah, and he clarified. He said, because of the book you guys put together, and I think your answer yeah. is appropriate. Okay, uh, thank you for the question, John. Uh, anyone else have any questions? You've got one of the authors of the greatest book written in the last 200 years on this subject, in my opinion. You might want to take advantage of this opportunity. Although Cheryl Jerry, has been... Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having us on and oh, all of oh, your wonderful words. Absolutely. And, and we are looking forward to, to to Dan Vogel. I am going to have him on the show as well. That'll be fun to do. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, yes, how about the W.W. Phelps illustration? Uh, I'm not. Are you talking about an illustration in the Method Infinite, Mosia? I'm not quite sure what illustration you're talking about. God is love. Oh, oh, yeah. oh, hey, here, here's a question. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what one you're talking about. The triangle. The abracadabra. The abracadabra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. That is a so, fun one. Yeah, you see, I think you see the Masonic influence. The reason we included that is just because um, he obviously was putting that God is love into um, the Masonic, um, the abracadabra format, you know. Yeah, no. there it is. Yeah. Thanks for asking that, Mosia. That is, that is a fun one. Hey, uh, Doug Vincent wants to know, what is the thing she cut out that she regrets the most in the book? Okay, I, I can tell you that. And I will be writing an article about it. But And I think Clinton even uh, mentioned this as well, is I loved um, writing about Joseph Smith Sr.'s dreams because I feel like each of his dreams that we know about, that Luce Mac Smith tells us about, is Masonic. And it can tell us a lot about um, Joseph Smith Sr.'s um, Masonic feelings and um, 
<clears throat> influences. So I missed cutting that out. I didn't want to cut that out, but it took so long because I had to explain like what the dream was and then why it was Masonic <laughs> and why it meant something. So, so it will make another article and I hated to cut that out. Wonderful. But thank you so much for determining to make it an article. We, we all already in advance appreciate it. And I'm quite certain my wonderful audience who has been with me through all 10 of these videos and they're saying they're loving it unless they're lying through their teeth. We'll all read that article. Absolutely. So thank you for, for doing So the good news is you guys, we've got some of the information coming out that was cut in, in other articles. And if I find out, I will be happy to let you know here on this channel also. Absolutely. Okay, yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay. Yeah, and I am fascinated by Joseph Smith Sr. and also Alvin. Also, Doug Vincent says, oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. That's looking yeah. forward to it. According and then to one last thing that we did not talk about very much um, is um, that chapter on... Um, the the um after Joseph Smith's martyrdom, when you have these other iterations of the church, oh, the then, different ites, right? The ites, and they go off, and and I mean, it's just a testimony of how much Freemasonry was involved. That each one of these ites took, you know, parts of Freemasonry with them. Yes, didn't, didn't just jettison that, but knew that it was important to keep it with them. And yet they, they, quote, apostatized from the church. I'm quoting, I promise. But they, ne uh -huh. they never utilized masonry as the basis for that. They kept that as one of the important parts. That's what, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That was it's really fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah that really is. That. That, again, that shows the, the gravity, the weight by the multiple tonnage that Joseph Smith gave to Freemasonry within yeah. the church. Yeah. Yeah, they all obviously saw it as important. Maybe didn't all exactly know what to do with it, but knew it was important. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it would have been very important. Well, thank you, audience. Uh really seriously. Um I, I we appreciate all the all the questions. Um yeah, Dan Vogel says, congratulations to you authors. And it has been fascinating. Patty Cake says so. And Mosia says it's a good episode. I knew these guys were going to love this. So uh -huh. thank you, you guys. You're, thank the, you, everyone. This shows your quality as an audience also. I'm not even kidding. Awesome, awesome. So um, I'm going to close it out for now. We're at an hour and a half. Very nice. Don't forget to hit the like button if you haven't already. Pretty please. And remember, be well do good, have fun, stay friends, keep friends, make friends, sleep well, work hard, have fun, and do come back periodically because you never know. I may spend another whole week kicking out five of these a day because I am an eccentric. I'm just saying. Stay tuned, you guys. We will see you next time on the Backyard Professor Live Sunday night. I got to go and let you guys rest. You've lost your entire weekend listening to my moral and physical and historic and psychological and mythological and spiritual obfuscation. And it will never end. <laughs> Boy. Bye, everyone. <laughs>